Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hang up and listen. Olympics Extra is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with an easy online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash hang up. Hi, this is Josh Levine. I'm Slate's sports editor and the host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. It's August 17th, 2016, and this is your Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra. On Tuesday night in Rio, Carrie Walsh Jennings and April Ross lost to Brazil's Agatha and Barbara in straight sets in the beach volleyball semis. Walsh Jennings, a three-time gold medalist, called her performance unacceptable and inexcusable, though her all-time Olympic record of 26-1 and is still not bad. After beating the U.S. on penalty kicks in the quarterfinals, the Swedish women's soccer team did it again, knocking out the homestanding Brazilians. After a 0-0 draw in regulation, they did it on penalties. The Swedes, which lost to Brazil 5-1 to in group play, were outshot 33-6, to but their defensive-minded, put-everyone-behind-the-ball approach worked again. After the quarterfinal, American goalkeeper Hope Solo called Sweden cowards. After Tuesday's match, Sweden's goalkeeper Hedvig Lindahl said the toughest opponent, she called it her enemy, 
was the hot Brazilian sun, which is extremely painful because she suffers from vitiligo, a lack of pigmentation in the skin. And in boxing, Ireland's Mick Conlon lost a decision to Russia's Vladimir Nikitin in the men's 56-kilogram bantamweight division. In a post-fight interview with Irish television, Conlon expressed his feelings about ABA, the International Boxing Association. You have a lot to get off your chest after that. Yeah, ABA cheats. I'm cheats. Some of that, that's me. I'll never box for ABA again. They're cheating bastards. They're paying everybody. And no, I don't, go, I don't give a fucking curse on TV. And retaining this year, I see it when Olympic gold. My dream's been shattered now. But you know what? I have a big career ahead of me. And these ones, they're known for being cheats. And they'll always be cheats. How much of boxing stinks from the core right there at the top. Amateur boxing stinking from the core right to the top is a fairly common sentiment in Rio and in every Olympics prior. Ringside observers agreed with Conlon that the judge's decision in his fight was extremely suspicious. On Wednesday, the Associated Press reported that ABA, a.k.a. the Cheating Bastards, had removed an undisclosed number of referees and judges from the Olympics after determining they had not met the organization's standards of competence. ABA did not announce which judges they'd removed or which matches those judges had refereed. Bad news for Mick Conlon. They said the results of all bouts will stand. On the track, American Jenny Simpson came in third behind Kenya's Faith Kipyugan and Ethiopia's Jinzebe Debaba in the 1500 meters, becoming the first American woman to medal in that event. Simpson, who finished just ahead of her fellow American Shannon Roberry, said afterwards, it makes me feel amazing because I've done it honestly and clean and with everything that's just inside my own body being expressed out on the track. Simpson had previously won the 1500 meters at the 2011 World Championships in Daegu, South Korea. At that same event, Lauren Fleshman finished seventh in the 5000 meters, at the time the highest ever finished for an American in that event at the World Championships. Fleshman was on six World Championship teams, was a two-time U.S. champion in the 5000, and a five-time NCAA champion at Stanford. Last month, she announced her retirement from the sport, and in a piece in the New York Times, Lindsey Krauss wrote that she carries the wrenching distinction of most likely being the best American distance runner never to make an Olympic team. In addition to what she's done on the track, Fleshman also pushed Nike to include women athletes in its ad campaigns, signed on with the women's running startup Wazelle, and has built up a huge following on her website, asklaurenfleshman.com, where she answers readers' questions about running and life. Lauren Fleshman, thanks for joining me. And thanks for having me. Sure. Um, And you've clearly made a very healthy life choice not to let what you did or didn't accomplish in your sport define you as a person. I can imagine that being difficult when what you do on the track is, you know, you win medals or you don't win medals. It's so much about winning and losing. And so um, I'm just wondering, did you kind of envision having a moment like what Jenny Simpson had for yourself? And was there also a moment when you sort of realized that it wasn't going to happen? Yeah, I'd say I went through a couple stages with, you know, regards to my belief and the ability to be the top of the world. And coming out of college, I didn't actually even know doping was a real thing. I mean, maybe I was just naive, but I think a lot of collegiate athletes coming out who are, you know, top ranked athletes don't think that doping is a problem. 
And I just thought maybe people were, had sour grapes or weren't really truly the best. And so they were finding something negative to say. And I think every egotistical stud coming out of college thinks that they're different and they actually are going to be the best. And that maybe even if there are drugs, doesn't matter anyway. I'd say I fit into that category. And so I believe for a couple of years that I could win a gold or get a world record or something like that. But then in 2007 and 2008, uh, women's 5K record dropped in, I think, 14, 11 or 12 or something like that um, from what had previously been high 20s or low 30s, 1430s. And while that 1430 was a jump, a uh, big jump, 1412 was just otherworldly. Yeah. And and the way it was being run, just it just didn't look human, you know, with 57 second last 400s and well ahead of the field. I mean, just things that you'd never seen before. And then I changed my mind. I was like, wow, I really don't think this is being done fairly. And I, for the first time in my career, I watched someone do something and was like, I don't think I can do that. And I don't think anybody I know can do that. And that just, that doesn't look right. And then after that, I had a lot of injury problems and started picky bars and did some other business ventures and then kind of recommitted to the sport when I got Mark Rowland as my coach. And I, I don't know, I started to kind of think maybe it was possible, like maybe I'd never run the fastest time, but in global competitions, they're often run strategically, championship style races. So right. the person with the fastest time doesn't always win. And I have a very good finishing kick. So I thought if I'm in the right race, maybe the race that I'm in at the next Worlds or Olympics will unfold in a way where I can snag a medal. And so, yeah, Jenny Simpson's moment, I imagine many times. And in 2011 at Worlds, when I finished seventh, I wholeheartedly believed that a moment like that was possible for me. So after the race last night, you tweeted congratulations to Shannon and to Jenny on amazingly executed races. You wrote brave, deliberate, fierce. I feel so strongly medals will upgrade. So that's not directly saying that the two women in front of them are doping, but it's kind of a millimeter away from that, right? Like, how did you get to the place? I mean, I guess you already said, but you feel comfortable saying that in public that you think that their medals are going to upgrade. I mean, I don't know about Kipiegon, but I feel strongly about Ginzebe. I mean, I certainly feel like I have, and the world has reason to doubt. I don't know definitely what she's doing, but her coach was arrested and his passport was taken away and they'd been being followed for months. David Torrance helped break the case and we're just awaiting verdicts and it, it might take eight years, but the kinds of performances, I just, I don't feel that they're real. And I just think it's only a matter of time before we find out, before we really find out. And that's, I don't remember who tweeted this the other day, but it was something along the lines of, you know, we don't have enough information to accuse and we don't have enough faith in the sport to believe. And I very much feel like that's the position we're in, but I've known so many people now have had medals upgraded years later, hand delivered to them and airports are arriving in like craft paper envelopes to their apartments. It's not unreasonable to think that that could happen to Shannon. And I believe I believe Shannon is a clean athlete and um, I believe Jenny is a clean athlete. And so if history repeats itself, they'll both end up with medals. Well, another reason that I think you have supporting evidence for what you're saying, I'm going to quote from Reuters here, 
The Ben Johnson 1988 Olympic 100-meter final was dubbed the dirtiest race in history, but there's a new contender for that dubious honor as the fallout continues from the drug-ravaged 2012 women's 1500 meters in London. Six of the top nine in that race, including gold and silver medalists, have served drug bans before or since. So my question there is, is there something particular about women's 1500 or women's distance running that would encourage doping or lead to doping? Yeah, I would say that women respond dramatically to drugs. And the 1500 and 5K in particular, those events are a mixture of speed and endurance, really. They look like distance races to people on TV. But if you've done them or you've trained for them, you know how much speed is required and how much power you really need to be able to finish with a sub two minute 800. You have to be extremely powerful. So the the number of drugs that you benefit from, like different types are high. Steroids, EPO, other stuff um, that I don't even know exists, but you're basically a high receptor and there's lots of options out there and they're hard to detect. I think testosterone is another one for women with the way that they measure testosterone is over a certain threshold. And then elite women fall any number of places below that threshold. And so microdosing your testosterone up to the very edge of that threshold is, is something that's widely believed to happen in women's sports. So, you know, you, you can't tell from a test, but um, it's happening. So it's a shame. All that said, I don't think that every event is completely rife with doping like some people do. I think there are certain events and certain times that get kind of like a wave. And I think that the women's 1500 is experiencing one of those. And it's good not to have Russia in these games because I think, you know, obviously they were proven to be a massive part of that. But we still have work to do catching people. So you're clearly an extremely thoughtful person based on, you know, the writing that you've done and just the philosophy that you kind of have taken on about your sport, but how do we think about the kind of advantages that might accrue to, you know, somebody who comes from Ethiopia or Kenya, who comes from an incredibly poor um, country um, versus an American? And if we're just saying hypothetically, somebody who's racing clean, but benefits from like fantastic coaching and an incredibly well-to-do place, just like, how do you think about privilege in track, basically? Yeah, I think racing clean is a privilege, is a sign of privilege. It's easy in the U.S. to stay clean. And I'm not saying there aren't people cheating because there's cheaters everywhere. But that's why I have a lot more belief in American performances, being an American, being on teams with a lot of these people across events, actually. So I'm, I'm not as skeptical. And I think that we also have a culture of we shame cheats. You know, it's taboo. And that's doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but especially in track and field, there's been a big movement of athletes speaking out, coaches speaking out, leaders speaking out. And it is clear you'd have to be sleeping under a rock to not know that if you cheated and got caught, you would be shamed and it would be a horrible experience. And I don't, I can't say that that's the case in a place like Russia or a place like Kenya or Ethiopia. Every culture is different in their relationship to what is ethically sound And even in my experience as an athlete, I know that my opinion has evolved to become more and more purist uh, when it comes to doping and seeking advantages as I've gotten older. And a lot of that is due to clean sport propaganda. And those things make a difference. I think that's one of the roles of WADA 
and USADA and each nation's version of USADA is to educate and almost propagandize clean sport so that taboo can serve as a powerful force in motivating athletes to stay clean. But I have a ton of empathy for athletes, even from Russia and places like Kenya and Ethiopia. It angers me on a personal level and it angers me for people like Shannon and Jenny and people who have their moments stolen. So from that perspective, I get really mad and fired up. But then from thinking about it in their shoes from these other nations, I have empathy because like you said, you win a medal or you break records as an Ethiopian or Kenyan and that's life-changing. And so we can't impose our scale of, is it worth it to cheat or not on other people necessarily? And we can't assume they have the same information we do. So, you know, I'm not heartless when it comes to that. I don't get mad at the athletes. I usually get mad at the systems. I get mad at people like coaches and agents. I get mad at actually Western country agents from rich, white, privileged places that go into African countries and exploit a lot of these athletes and introduce them to doping doctors so they can make money. I mean, that's that's really common. Everybody plays a role in this in some way. So one of the really fascinating parts of the article in the Times that I quoted from in the intro by uh, Lindsey Krauss was the examination of your role at Nike and sort of how your view of Nike evolved over your time there and how you emailed Nike's chief executive asking to meet with him. Can you tell folks that story? Yeah. So I, I had been with Nike for about three years and I had noticed that the female athletes and the male athletes, to be honest, in track and field really weren't promoted in any way. And everyone always complains that track and field is a dying sport and that it needs help. It needs saving and who better to save it than the biggest sports brand in the world who has a roster of 240 track athletes in the U.S. or whatever. And I always felt like they had the power to promote athletes and help them become household names, help tell their stories. And it wasn't happening. And in particular, what angered me this one day was I got a Nike women's catalog in the mail and all of the pictures were of models. And this is supposed to be their sports category. And then when you looked at men's marketing, they much more often used male athletes like their pro basketball players or golfers or whatever, like not supermodel people to represent their brand. And I was like, well, this is a total contradiction. And it, it pissed me off. I had just recently met the CEO, Mark Parker, at a youth event, a Nike youth event that I had um, attended and been a coach for or whatever. They bring in elite athletes to meet the kids and encourage them. And he spoke and I got a chance to talk to him. And he struck me as like a really passionate, reasonable guy. I was like, I really don't think that he would dig this. And so on a whim, I just emailed him in the middle of the night. I just couldn't sleep. And I emailed him thinking I'll never hear back. And I just guessed his email address (laughs) because email addresses at Nike are all follow a similar rule, it seems. And it worked. And the next day I got an email back and an invitation to come drive up to, uh, Portland and meet with him in his office. And I did. And I was scared out of my mind, but he was really receptive. And in fact, things changed instantaneously. We had a really lively discussion about how athletes at Nike are used, not just women, but women of color, people of color, um, how they're represented in media, who they choose to represent and why. And he promised to do something about it. And um, right after that, Kara Goucher myself and Sonia Richards-Ross at the 400 
were flown out to Kauai to shoot the next Nike women's catalog. And I heard that some of their professional swimmers were used for the swimsuit stuff. It was great. Uh, It was a really amazing moment, actually, to feel like you could be a person that could inspire change just by having the courage to ask, just ask the question. And I'd say that that impacted a lot of how I approach the things I find wrong in the sport now is instead of just grumbling about it, I work on trying to find ways, who's the person that can make this change? What's a reasonable way to address it with them and to have faith that people will change things. I did meet with Mark Parker one other time, right, as I was deciding whether or not to leave Nike. And and I had a conversation with him about doping and Nike's relationship with doped athletes and basically said that I would stay, but I don't feel like Nike is taking a strong enough stand when it comes to dopers and they're never waving the clean sport flag. They're strangely quiet about it. Well, there are allegations against Nike's Oregon project and Alberto Salazar, right? Yeah, there are. And and I don't obviously know the full extent of any of that. I believe in Shannon Robery and she's an athlete of Alberto's. We'll see what happens with that case. But there's just stuff with John Capriotti has a history. He's a global sports marketing director of spending copious amounts of money on programs that turn out to be doped, um, that are proven to be doped. You know, the Marion Joneses and Regina Jacobs, the Balco scandal had a disproportionate amount of Nike athletes. And it just happens over and over again. Lance Armstrong. And Lance was really the reason I wanted to leave Nike because my last year with them, he had admitted to doping and he was still a Nike athlete. They were like the last company to let him go. And I was on campus working out in the Lance Armstrong gym and just thinking, I can't even, I didn't even feel at liberty to talk about clean sport because it felt against the brand. (laughs) And I was tired of feeling like I had to keep my mouth shut on issues like doping because I would feel like a hypocrite if I talked about doping and I'm wearing the same swoosh as all these other people that that cheat. And I just didn't want to be in that environment. And so I got to talk to Mark Parker about that. And I'd say that he listened, but obviously nothing changed. And I'd say that, you know, Nike's implicated with Gensabe Dababa's coach, Jama Aiden. His group is a Nike group. So it's it just keeps going, you know. It's frustrating. They could be such a force for change, Nike could, with the, how big they are, how powerful they are. They could really put a strong stake in the ground for clean sport. They could fund anti-doping efforts. I mean, if they wanted to, if they really cared, they could be the thing that changes this around, I think. The theme that's kind of resonating with me in this conversation is, on the one hand, running is just so simple and elemental and what other sport could be as simple as getting to the finish line first. And then everything you're talking about is like these huge structural forces that are working against you. It seems like everything that would kind of lead you to want to be And the sport, when you get into it, it just seems so far away from that ideal. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, that is totally fair. And that's why what Jenny Simpson said in that interview that you quoted is so remarkable. Um, And athletes like Lily King and swimming, it's so much easier as an athlete. And actually, some would argue it's critical as an athlete to shut out all of the problems all the realities of the institution of the sport that you are essentially the money-making part of. Um, You are the talent. And the only way you can really express your talent for most people is to shut all that out, live in a state of suppressed 
fantasy land or whatever, be in a state of denial about doping, about corruption. That's the only way you can keep getting to the finish line first uh, or over the high jump bar or whatever. Like you've got to do, they have to have that focus. And, but what that ends up doing is taking our strongest voices and silencing them and real change has to be athlete driven. And so when you have someone like Jenny Simpson having the Olympic race of her career and making comments alluding to clean sport or doping the day before her race and immediately following, it just really goes a long way. All kids growing up watching that are going to see somebody making a clean sport a priority. Like that's one of the things she fit into her short interview window. And I think that says a lot. And every person you see on TV right now in the Olympics once watched people on the Olympic stage being interviewed and expressing what they feel is important to their sport and their involvement in sport. And that's what has shaped this generation. And so it just makes me feel good to see people like Jenny standing up for that and inspiring the next group. Just if I can editorialize for a second, the thing that bothered me a little bit about Lily King, getting back to what you said before, is that she kind of personalized it and Mm -hmm. wagging her finger at a particular athlete when, as you said, this is so much more a systemic issue. And I feel like if you do that, then people watching at home, there's a risk that they'll take it as a personal issue and say, this person's dirty and I'm going to root for the clean one, just like a very kind of simple weather. If it's U.S. versus Russia, pretty simplistic kind of Cold War mindset when I don't know if it's really about that. Yeah. When I watched that Lily Kane thing happen, a part of my heart crumpled in on itself because it felt very personal and painful. But then the part of me that's looking at the long-term change of the sport that behavior that she exhibited is, is really no different than how we teach behavior to children and how we socialize behavior. When somebody gets in trouble and they take a timeout and they sit in the corner and the teacher points out what they did, it's not really even about that kid. It's to teach all the kids in the room, hey, that behavior is not acceptable. And yes, there's a degree of sort of public shaming involved in that, and it doesn't feel good to see adults do that. And so I had kind of conflicted feelings about watching that because on the one hand, yeah, it was kind of mean and unfair. But on the other hand, it will send a strong message about doping. You know, in the only window of time, Lily King can make a statement. It's like you got to do what you can with the stage that you have in the moment you have. The one time people are watching you in your four years, you know, your whatever it is, 1,400 days of training and competing. So, you know, I don't really blame her. Yeah. Okay. I want to end with something that happened in your event, the 5,000, and this also falls into the life is complicated and everything falls into gray areas (laughs) category, but Abby D'Agostino and Nikki Hamblin colliding in the 5,000 meters, they helped each other to the finish line, the American and Hamblin from New Zealand, which was genuinely a great moment. And there we see Abby D'Agostino helping Nikki Hamblin back up, and now D'Agostino lifting as well. Brave, a brave running for D'Agostino just to make those last few laps. But I felt as a viewer, like, with everything we've been talking about, with all the, like, accusations of doping and kind of the worries and concerns about track and field, that this moment was kind of being used to burnish the Olympics and the Olympic spirit and was being put forward as this is what really is happening in the Olympics. And... 
I don't know if you had the same feeling, if it made you feel uneasy at all, or if it was just a very kind of, you know, this was great and I have like not particularly complicated or conflicted feelings about it. I think that what I liked about that moment was that moments like that, that aren't as visually obvious exist in every event. And those stories are never told, but the relationships, the genuine caring for one another, the being happy to be there, to have that privilege to be at the games. I wish that NBC would tell more stories that didn't require having to fall first to do that. Because instead what they do is they focus so much on the metals, and that's the area where doping is concentrated the most. So we can have the least belief. Plus it's not even really the Olympic creed. The Olympic creed is that the most important thing is not to win. It's to take part. That's not the destination or whatever. It's the struggle. And so the Olympics is supposed to be inspiring people through struggle, not through triumph. And so when I saw that moment, I was like, okay, so it takes falling and limping together to get NBC or anyone, you know, with the Olympics to show these more rich moments. That's the only thing that bugged me about it. It just felt like, can we just tell some richer stories? Can we talk more in depth about the people that are setting personal bests, even though they're finishing seventh place, they're not in the medals. Can we just be a little more creative with our journalism? Um, Lauren Fleshman is the proprietor of AskLaurenFleshman.com. She's got a company, Picky Bars. Uh, she is a representative of Wazell. That's correct, right? Yeah, that's correct. Good job. Uh, thank you. And yeah, you should check her out. She also does occasional podcasts. Uh, tell people about your podcast quickly. Oh, yeah, I do a podcast with um, Julia Hanlon of Running on Ohm, which is a health and wellness podcast, highly ranked in she does a great job. So we talk about, we take questions from readers and try to get into the, the heart and soul of athletic, uh, leading an athletic lifestyle and kind of those personal dragons you end up slaying along the way. Lauren Fleshman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This episode of Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. If you hate searching through stacks of hold files and paperwork, with Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button. Their convenient system helps you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet, it's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash hangup. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. We just talked about Jenny Simpson's historic win in the women's 1500 meters. Here with more thoughts on why Simpson was able to succeed and why American hurdlers didn't win a medal on Tuesday is David Epstein, a writer for ProPublica and the author of the book, The Sports Gene. It was bizarre world for the American team at the track last night. For the first time ever, an American woman, Jenny Simpson, medaled in the 1,500-meter race. And for the first time ever, no American man medaled in the 110-meter hurdles. So what's the deal? Simpson's bronze medal wasn't exactly a huge surprise. She was the world champion in 2011, and she took the silver at the 2013 World Championships. She's kind of a symbol of the resurgence of American distance running. 
The U.S. hit Nader at 2,000 at the Olympics in Sydney when no athlete won a medal any distance over the 400 meters. That prompted a look in the mirror, and perhaps most importantly, the formation of teams and training groups so that athletes could continue to train after college and work up to competing on the world stage. In the 1980s, American distance runners were used to training in groups and often living together, but when the sport professionalized somewhat and money came into it, they tended to split up and train more separately. But now we're back to elites training together, and the results are showing. But what about going medalists in the men's 110-meter hurdles? U.S. men typically dominated that event, in some Olympics winning all three medals. The only time U.S. men didn't come home with a medal in the high hurdles was when the U.S. team boycotted in 1980. But let's not get worried about the demise of U.S. sprint hurdling just yet. In fact, the reigning Olympic champion and current world record holder is an American hurdler named Aries Merritt. Merritt had a rare kidney disease and finished third at last year's world championships just days before he needed a kidney transplant. Merritt had to endure an arduous recovery that was made more difficult by a decision of track and field's governing body not to allow him to use the blood-boosting drug EPO in order to speed his recovery. Instead, Merritt had to undergo five-hour IV drips four days a week while he was recovering. EPO, as you might remember from the Lance Armstrong doping scandal, causes one's body to produce more red blood cells that carry oxygen, therefore improving endurance. So for a sprint hurdler, it doesn't really make much sense as a performance-enhancing drug. Not to mention, the effects dissipate rather quickly when someone stops taking it. So the decision of track and field's governing body seems a little bit ridiculous to me. Despite that, Merritt just barely missed qualifying for the U.S. team for Rio. With a little more recovery time, he probably would have entered the Olympics as the favorite. Now we have to wait and see if the U.S. women can bring home a medal in the 100-meter hurdles. The high hurdles are a pretty erratic event, and it's really hard for anyone to be consistent. So even if the American women don't bring home a medal, it shouldn't be seen as the demise of U.S. sprinting. Just remember, the woman who just set the world record, that would be hurdler Kendra Harrison, didn't even manage to make the team. David Epstein is a writer for ProPublica, and he's the author of the book The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. And now it is time for our after torch, and I'm not going to go through the uh, business of coming up with a name for the after torch, because I just want to get right into the, the heat of the after torch. just want to toss myself right onto the flames. So I mentioned in uh, the interview with Lauren Fleshman the moment where American Abby D'Agostino and New Zealand's Nikki Hamblin collided in the 5,000 meters. And there's just been a lot of coverage of it on NBC and in uh, newspapers about how this moment showed the Olympic spirit and they helped each other to the finish line. And it was really cool and powerful and emotional and it was instantly commodified. And there was no more uplifting Olympic moment and no more commodified Olympic moment, maybe in modern history, than Derek Redmond, uh, the British 400-meter runner, his collapse with a torn hamstring in the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, after which his father, Jim, came onto the track and assisted him across the line. We're going to play a clip for you now, and it is impossible to find a clip of this happening with the original commentary. Every clip has inspirational music going behind it. 
It was made into commercials for Nike and for Visa. And here is a version um, that does have some of the original commentary behind it and also some great swelling music to really tug at your heartstrings. He just wants to finish. His dad's trying to run onto the track to stop him. He's going to tell him, Derek, don't. Now in the greatest arena in sport, he's getting the cheer of the games. Okay, so that was great. I'm inspired. But here's the thing. Derek Redmond did something awesome after his 1992 Olympic experience in Barcelona that does not get talked about as much. And that is, he participated on a game show in the UK. It was a spinoff of an American game show that I think we all know and love, and that was American Gladiators. He appeared on Celebrity Gladiators, and not only did he appear, he didn't collapse in the middle of the obstacle course and have anyone help him to the end of the finish line. He won Celebrity Gladiators. And so I'm going to play a clip that's inspirational of Celebrity Gladiators, and there's no swelling music behind it. It hasn't been commodified. This is just pure, unadulterated game show, reality TV greatness. Derek across the balance beam, now the Travelator. And he punishes the final obstacle. So Derek Redmond, the 400-meter track star, is now Gladiator, celebrity champion, 1994. But Derek Redmond's Celebrity Gladiator story does not end there. It gets even better. He was named the official timekeeper, the assistant to referee John Anderson on Celebrity Gladiators. So Derek Redmond, if you think his story ended with the collapse on the track in Barcelona in 1992, followed by many commercials depicting said moment, it did not. He was a Celebrity Gladiators legend. Let's hear it for Derek Redmond! We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Laura Wagner. The producers of the Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra are Afim Shapiro and Dan Bloom. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Ralph Metcalf, and thanks for listening. How much of boxing stinks from the core right there at the top? Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.